All right, good morning. Good morning here in live. We're welcoming Amped Blend. Good morning out in Roan County. Good morning down in Bearden to you as well. You can open your Bibles to Exodus uh, chapter six is where we're gonna be. And as we get started, um, the images coming out of the island of Maui this week were beyond comprehension as we see the mass devastation there. Um, what was considered to be a contained wildfire all of a sudden switches direction and engulfs a whole community, 80% of a, of a historic town gone. And it's hard for us to get our minds around that. You may have seen uh, some video of, on social media of people in the midst of the fire trying to drive, fire on both sides of their vehicle, trying to get out of town. And you're like, I can't even imagine. It seemed like a, a sci-fi movie. Like, I can't even imagine that. And we're reminded once again of, of just the fact that not just um, is, is humanity broken, but, but the world is broken by, by human rebellion against God. And here we are in the book of Exodus, and we're going to be reading about some pretty amazing things uh, as we go from here. And, and often we think of those events just maybe, like, like maybe in the back of our mind, even if we believe the Bible isn't fiction, could, could that have really happened? And it keeps us from actually imagining it, of, of, of thinking what would have been like to encounter these supernatural acts of God that were totally overwhelming, amazing, and devastating. The people of God saw God's mighty action. And sometimes we're like, oh yeah, that's nice. Oh, that's, okay, yeah, well, that's good. Let me move on with my life. And we don't actually take time to consider what, what God's story is revealing to us. And so last week, we began to talk about a biblical worldview from Exodus. And the series is called Supernatural. And so there's the lead line. A, a biblical worldview of, of Exodus includes both what we would consider the natural and the supernatural. And in fact, we want, to, we want to suggest to you that there's not a difference between the natural and supernatural. There's only the world that God created. And, and for us, we've divided it into the things we see and the things we unsee. God just created, the, the word is the cosmos, that he's just created the world. It includes the things that are seen, the things that are unseen. It, can, it, it includes the physical realm and the spiritual realm. All of it, created by God, all working together. And somewhere along the way, humanity got really smart and said, um, yeah, we don't trust that anymore. What really, we only trust the things we can see because we're smarter than God. They, 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 we don't need God. We're, we're smarter than that. And, and so we want to go back and allow uh, the, the Bible to inform how it is that we see the world. And now we also are careful that we're not calling this series a Christian worldview. Often what people equate with a biblical worldview is something that I would call a Christian worldview. We're not trying to give you a set of beliefs that if you can just check the box, you qualify as a Christian. That is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the way we view the world as informed by God himself, and, and it unfolds over time. And, and so far in God's story, back in the book of Genesis, what has unfolded is humanity has rebelled against God. And we're going to take a look this week on what, what does God do? So how does God respond? Because often we, we view it as there's this God of the Old Testament who's out to get people. 
And we're gonna, we're gonna evaluate that this weekend. Is that really true? Is God out to get you? Is he looking to get you? God will get you. If you do something wrong, some of you use that as a threat to your kids. Guess what? I'm gonna let you in right here, okay? Here's a little secret. You do something wrong, God's not gonna get you, okay? No matter what your parents say, no matter how they try and convince you that you better be in line or God's gonna get you, God is not out to get you. Some of us, are, we're, we're old and we're like, wow, I, I don't know that I, I trust that. <laughs> I feel like God's out to get me. So last week we began, and this is the foundational principle for the whole series, that, that we have to begin in this place or we're never gonna get to a biblical worldview. And that is that my hope is to know God and what he says. It's not to know information about God. It's not how many beliefs I can rack up. No, it's to know God. If I wanna have a biblical worldview, I have to know God. And that means that a biblical worldview begins with wanting to know God and what he says. I'll never have a biblical worldview if I don't want to know God and what he says, if I'm not seeking to know God and what it is that he says in a very personal kind of way. So as we jump in, this is um, the frame that sets uh, this whole series. We're gonna go through Exodus chapter five through chapter 15, which sets the exodus of the exodus. This is the children of Israel leaving Egypt, leaving Egypt and heading into the wilderness. It's the exodus of the exodus. That's what we're gonna be covering. And this whole thing is set up by something we looked at last week in Exodus chapter five by Pharaoh's response to Moses and Aaron as they come and demand that the children of Israel be allowed to go into the wilderness. Pharaoh responds like this. Who is the Lord or who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. And from this point through chapter 15, it's all about that the world should know who Yahweh is. Both the Egyptians, and we'll see later on, also the children of Israel, that they would know that he is God. Now, Yahweh is at work, and Yahweh will be known. That's the theme, okay? Yahweh will be known, but just because Yahweh is at work does not mean that people will respond in faith. Just because he's at work in the midst of bringing salvation to the children of Israel doesn't mean that they're going to have a, a, a response of believing him. Now, as we move into the Old Testament, as followers of Jesus, um, it's important, and we've, we've covered this a few times, but this is important foundation, that, that we know that Jesus just doesn't show up on the scene later. Many of us um, haven't spent much time in the Old Testament. We, we come at the Bible from the uh, perception that I came to know Christ. What's really important is how I live as a Christian. And the way to know how I live as a Christian is in the New Testament, especially those letters that Paul wrote to people that were part of the church. Those are really important. That's how I live. And the rest of it, uh, not really. But if we wanna have a biblical worldview, we have to read the Bible because Paul assumes as he writes those letters that you know the Bible. He assumes, it's, that's a given, of course you know that, that you would know not just the New Testament, but that you would know all of God's word. That's the foundation. We can't rightly understand what it is that Paul writes to a group of believers if we don't know the background to the story. 
And it's also important that, that we know, okay, if we've been around church, we know a core belief is that Jesus is God incarnate. Born of the Virgin Mary, that he, he is God in the flesh. And that means as we're linking the story together that we have to know as we read the Old Testament that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. As God reveals himself uh, through the divine name as Yahweh, I am who I am, I will be who I will be. It's really more like I was who I was, I am who I am, I will be who I will be, I'm the God who is. And you're like, which one of those does it mean? Yeah, all of that, all of that. The God who is, yes, I will be who I will be, I was who I was, I am who I am, Yahweh. The Lord, that's every time you read that, you have to be intentional and you have to think of it as the Lord. And then when you read the New Testament and they refer to Jesus as the Lord, you're linking that. The New Testament authors linked it together for you. It's right there, but it's cloaked beneath English. It's right there as the Old Testament refers to the Lord in the New Testament, as it refers to the Lord, it's referring to Yahweh and the connection there. And so as they're referring to Jesus, that the New Testament authors believe that Jesus was Yahweh in the flesh. And so as we come to the Old Testament, it's good for us to remind ourselves that, that this is the beginning of the unfolding and that Yahweh is the God of salvation. That is true. Yahweh is the God of salvation and it's been presented to you different than that. That the Old Testament is all about judgment and the God of the Old Testament is the God of judgment. And we're gonna hold that intention because that is true, okay? That is true. Yahweh is the God of judgment. We're gonna talk about that another week. But he is the God of salvation. And because Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh, guess what? Jesus is the God of judgment. He's the judge. As many of you who are out there with this idea that, that Jesus, you know, Jesus is my friend. And, uh, no, Jesus is the judge. Why? He's Yahweh in the flesh. But what we see unfold in God's story is first and foremost, he's the God of salvation. Yahweh is the God of salvation to all who believe. And that means that Jesus is the God of salvation to all who believe. And that unfolds in God's story. As we pick up here in chapter six, it says, but the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. We, we just saw that the children of Israel suffered severe disappointment as Moses and Aaron came to them and said, you're gonna be delivered. There's a way out, God's gonna deliver you. And so they go to Pharaoh, demand the release of the children of Israel. And he's like, I'm not doing that. And life got harder. They became crushed under the slavery that they were already in. Their response is, why did you do this to us? And Moses responds to Yahweh, why did you do this to them? Why did you do this evil to them? It's worse now, you sent me to deliver them. They've not been delivered at all. Life is worse. And Yahweh says, yeah, but now you're gonna see. Now you're gonna see. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them 
to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I am of uncircumcised lips? But the Lord spoke, spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. As we go back to the beginning of this little section here, as Moses uh, encounters God and he says, I am the Lord, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my, my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. We come across a little issue in the text. Like, whoa, wait a minute. If you've been reading along, if you've been playing the game at home, you've already encountered this way back in the last series as you read through it. You're like, wait a minute. It seems like this, this would already happen. This appears to be some kind of contradiction. And so this is just a little aside, but I think it's important because this is one of those issues that somebody could come to you and say, there's a contradiction in the Bible, and what do you do about this? And if you haven't actually made an investment in understanding that sometimes there's issues with the biblical text and how do you handle them, then all of a sudden you're going, oh, okay, wait, what, what do I do with that? Wow, there's a contradiction in the Bible? I've... And so I wanna encourage you that anytime that there's an apparent contradiction, really smart people have worked reasonable solutions. There's not an issue that you, you come across where there might not be a, a viable option. But just because you're like, okay, there's probably a viable option doesn't mean that you shouldn't understand what that viable option is. I wanna encourage you as you come across questions, not to just gloss it over, but to ask the question and then make the investment in understanding that. So I'm, here's a, a good example. Here's this issue with the name Yahweh. It's been used since Genesis chapter two. And so what do we do when the name was used all through Genesis, all through Exodus up to this point, God has already revealed his name to Moses at the burning bush back in chapter three. What do we do now when it appears like there's a second uh, revelation of the divine name Yahweh? What do we do with this now? And so Yahweh, the first thing we need to know is Yahweh is God's personal name. It's the Lord but we keep saying it because we wanna make sure that you're connecting the dots, that you would know that, that every time the Lord is used, that that is the covenant name, if it's in small caps, the covenant name of God. And here are three absolutely viable solutions. Uh, one is that Yahweh is a new name revealed to Moses with the use in Genesis being used by the biblical author way back to connect the dots. And so this, there is one view that would say that this is the first time that the name is revealed and that um, 
as the author looks back, he wants to make sure that you know it's not a new God on the scene. It's the same God. And so as the story is written, the name, the covenant name of God is used all the way back in Genesis chapter two. That's a theory. I don't believe it's compelling. That's my personal view. You may hold that view and that's cool. You still love Jesus. I still love Jesus. That's cool. I just don't think there's a compelling case for that one. There's a traditional view that says Yahweh's name was known, but it has been given a previously unknown meaning or it's given greater significance. Now, there is a case for this one. This is the traditional view that that by my act of salvation, they've not seen me act in this way. They knew me as the name is El Shaddai, and, and that's one of the names, but it gets translated as God Almighty, and that's a whole nother rabbit trail that we have no time to chase, but, but you just think of it as a name. It isn't like, oh yeah, he's also, it's, it's another name that for God is, is God Almighty. And the third is a grammatical solution, and where there's a viable translation that emphasizes this fact that, that this is who he is, and it comes out in translation as a rhetorical question. So a rhetorical question, we use them all the time. It would sound like, did I not make myself known as? That's an emphasis. That's the view that you'll, you'll hear from the guys who do the Bible Project. That's the view that, that they hold to, and there's other scholars that hold to that view. Uh, and so as you go to a resource, this is what I would encourage you. This is one of those issues that you need to read from a couple different resources because smart people who love Jesus have different views. I believe that the most compelling is the grammatical case. Like, okay, did I not make myself known as Yahweh? In fact, you might write that in your notes. Or did I not make myself known as Yahweh? But ultimately, what is important here is that in Exodus chapter six, verses two through eight, what we see is Yahweh is on the move. The case is being built. From the beginning of Exodus on, the case is being built. We saw first that the God of salvation, Yahweh is the God of salvation, and that he's raised up a deliverer by the name of Moses, and now they come to this point, the tension's being built. And we've encouraged you in the book of Exodus to, to, as you're reading the Bible story, even though we don't believe it's fiction, make sure you hear this part really clear, okay? We believe that this is historical. We believe that that this is true, all right? But we want you to read it like it's fiction. Why? Because we read fiction different. We start to imagine stuff. If you can picture stuff in your head, you begin to picture stuff in your head. If you can't picture stuff in your head, then you have to work really hard to imagine what, it, what, what might be being said here. But, but to read it, asking questions of the text like you would a fiction novel. Why? Because the biblical authors are amazing and they're weaving stuff together. They're just not interested in historical facts. That's not how God tells his story. And so this isn't about coming to know the facts. And yet, that's how often we just approach the Old Testament. We believe it's like a history book and we approach it just for the facts. And so if you're going to the Old Testament just looking for the facts, you're missing the point. You end up missing the story. The point is the story, the story of God that's being unfolded. And at this point, the story is Yahweh is on the move. And this really cool little section here in verses six through eight 
framed by the phrase, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. And then there's seven I will statements assuring that Yahweh's intentions of bringing salvation to the Israelites are understood, that you would, that you would go, okay, wait, something's happening. And so as we're reading like fiction, for us, repetition from an author is one of those things we're like, what do they think I'm dumb? Why do they just keep saying the same thing over and over again? You don't get a lot of repetition from a modern author. The authors of the Bible, they love repetition. And so when you see repetition, instead of going, why do they keep saying that? You go, okay, wait, there's something here. There's something that's going on. Also, there's, there's not like a secret Bible code. Let's, let's dispel that. We're not talking about secret Bible code, but there's significance in numbers. And all of a sudden, when you're reading a section and there's this frame, I am the Lord and I am the Lord, and all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. You go back and you read it again. And then you count them. And you're like, ooh, there's seven. And if you were here when we went through the book of Revelation, you're like, oh, wow, seven, that's important. That's a number of completion. The, the, the author of Revelation used seven in a significant kind of way. Why? Because all throughout God's story, seven is used in a significant kind of way. And then we talked about that, that the biblical authors use an X-shaped structure to point towards the middle. And, and, and in that X-shaped structure, the number seven works out perfectly because all of a sudden you see the point of the story in the midst of it. And here, the, the middle of, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Right in the middle of that is, I will take you to be my people. And when we get to chapter 19, I'm going to give away the story because hopefully you've already read the story. What we're going to see is that, that they are the people of God. So all humanity will get to know who the God of the Old Testament is, that Yahweh will be known. He says, you are going to be my people. You are my priests. We're going to talk about that in the next series. So it's really important that we go, okay, wait, 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 what's going on? And so God's story is that Yahweh's plan to bring blessing to all nations is in motion. If somebody were to say to you, when does the mission of God begin? When does God begin his salvation of people? Often there's, there's this understanding like, okay, well, the Old Testament was just setting stage for God to bring his salvation through Jesus. Like it's with Jesus, God finally is bringing salvation to people. That isn't God's story. God's story links it all the way back. We've talked about this already. If somebody said, when did God begin to pursue humanity, to restore relationship in order that the brokenness of humanity that's established at the beginning of God's story in Genesis chapters one through 11, that humanity would be restored to him, your answer is in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, the mission of God begins. That's where it begins. Now, the Lord said to Abraham, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the beginning. This is the beginning of God's salvation. This is the beginning of God bringing blessing to humanity. It plays out first through Abraham and then through his, his sons into a group called the children of Israel. Ultimately, yes, it plays out to Jesus. And we went through the gospel of Mark where we'd start linking it back. It's not a choice of just working your way progressive. Like we work it from both directions that ultimately its final fulfillment is in Jesus, but it's already playing out in God's story, which all of a sudden you're going, wait a minute. I was told that the God of the Old Testament is the God of judgment and wrath and destruction. And yes, he is the God of judgment, but first he's the God of salvation. We're gonna see something really cool in a couple weeks. This gonna, if, I wish I could tell you now, but I wanna hold it in tension. It's super cool. The story's better than you think it is. And so as we think about God's entire story, it's important that we hold attention. He is first and foremost, the God of creation, and then he's the God of salvation. And in order to make all the story together, he also needs to bring everything into alignment. And so he's gonna demonstrate who he is through judgment on rebellion. That's exactly the mission of Jesus in this world. It's the same, it doesn't change. His job is to bring judgment on rebellion. How did he do it? By dying. And through his, his perfect life and his sacrificial death and his powerful resurrection, he brings judgment on rebellion and life to all who believe. That's what Yahweh does in the Old Testament. He brings life to those who trust him. Now, Israel is about to experience the salvation of Yahweh, and he wants them to know that, but they don't believe. Why? Because of past experience. Here's the thing. Yahweh's plan to bring salvation, to blessing to all people is in motion, yet past failure and adversity lead us to ask if that is true. Man, we, we sing about God's faithfulness. We sing about the things he's done in the past, but in our hearts are we going, yeah, but in this place I got disappointed. In this place I got let down. In this place he didn't meet my expectations or maybe I let myself down or I didn't do what I, I thought. Do I have what it takes? Did I do something wrong? What if I had done something different? We ask questions of ourselves and we ask questions of God. Now, maybe out, no, maybe not out loud. Maybe we don't ask them out loud because if you ask the question out loud, there's kind of a fear. If I ask the question out loud, what will people think of me? They won't think I'm very spiritual. Like they might judge me because I'm asking questions about God because uh, they may come from a framework that says, whatever you do, you don't question God. I was part of a church once upon a time that, that God showed me something in my life in a very personal kind of way. And that is that um, all the stuff that God had done in my life, I was holding against him. Now, I would never have said that out loud, ever, ever. But that underlying anger in my life, it was at God. 
Because after all, did he not know? Does he not know the stuff that I traded away for, for him? Does he, does he not know the, the dreams I gave up on for him? Does, does he not know the sacrifice I've made for him? Once again, never would have said that out loud, ever. But God has this ability to start like peeling back the layers and all of a sudden you start seeing stuff. You're like, wow, that's pretty dark. That's pretty, that's pretty bad. And so as he showed me that, what, what do you do in that moment? You, you turn, the word is repent. That's a super positive word that, that, that is in the scriptures. We turn and go the other way. We, we're like, wow, God, I can't believe I was angry at you for that. Or maybe we struggle and we fight and we're like, God, yeah, but you. In my case, I was like, wow, I, I, I turned. I'm like, Phew. And then I went back to the church where I, I was at the time, and um, I, I, I confessed that to the church. I confessed. God showed me something while I was away, showed me that I was, um, showed me that I was angry at you. And for the most part, that, that morning, people were like, man, that's amazing. Ooh, yeah, that's great. Thank you for your transparency. You're like me. I'm like, yeah, I'm more like you than you want me to be. And uh, <laughs> I'm just like you. <laughs> and um, later that night, I found out that somebody in the church wrote a letter to the church leadership saying that I needed to not be a pastor anymore. And I wanna assure you, Two Rivers Church, you're never gonna experience that. Ever. Never are you gonna experience that. Why? Because we know we're human. We know we struggle. We read the Bible. We, we know that the biblical authors, they struggle. We know Psalm 73, we read this week in the Live It Out, was all about the struggle. God, why? Why are they successful? Why do the evil succeed? And we, we see the biblical authors struggle with the real questions of life. And so that's why we encourage you to, to, to embrace the struggle. Like, okay, be transparent in that. Ask the hard questions. And here's what we see, that, that God doesn't give up on the Israelites in the midst of their discouragement. Why? Yahweh's salvation must be known, and he's not gonna give up on you either. And here's what it says, beginning in chapter seven. Now, okay, before we get to chapter seven, I do wanna note, hey, just because we're skipping over the genealogy here in chapter six does not mean that it's insignificant. It's a condensed genealogy that connects Aaron and Moses to the priestly line that, that says they're legitimate. They're legitimate leaders to the nation of Israel. They're connected. We just don't have time to get into it. And we're gonna pick up here in chapter seven where it says, and the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh. 
that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. The story, the story is starting to get really good. Right? It's, it's picking up the tension. The story's about to get really, really good. It's a story between both the physical and the spiritual realms. The two are, are colliding. And it's really important in the midst of our questions that we'd be like, wait a minute, this is not all there is to the story. There's more to the story. So our part is to make sure that we have the intentional thought. We must remember the supernatural world is just as real as the natural world. It's just as real, if not more real, that, that there's there's not this separation between the natural and the supernatural that, that God sends these messengers to Pharaoh and says, work the supernatural. And the response is, that word magicians, that's not a really great translation. These are the priests. These are the priests of all the gods that they would go in and they would it's like buy their magic arts kind of stuff. Today, we're gonna frame that. Uh, we, would, we would understand it as demonic. They wouldn't have had that as a worldview. They wouldn't have understood that there's forces of darkness called demons in the way that we would be able to articulate that. But, but it's not saying that, that the, the gods of the, the Israelites were non-existent in that kind of way. Wait a minute, when, when these um, priests of darkness worked their magic arts, stuff happened. So it's really important that we as people go, wait a minute, there's something more at work in the world than what I see, and there's forces of light, and there's forces of darkness, that, there's, that there is God at work, and there's also the forces of darkness at work in the spiritual realm. This is very real. The rest of this story is gonna force us to buy into the, the realities that happen in the spiritual realm, that there's supernatural stuff that's very real, and, and this begins to unfold this week. Now, if you're skeptical about the supernatural, I wanna encourage you, if you know Jesus and you'd be like, have you ever encountered the supernatural? If, if you would say, I belong to Jesus, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, uh, however you would phrase that, if you would say, you have new life in Christ, you have already experienced the supernatural. It requires a supernatural act of God. Paul wrote to, to Titus and he said, it's by the washing of regeneration of the Holy Spirit that we come into new life in Christ. That is a supernatural act. If somebody says, um, well, why would I need God? You'd be like, okay, well, there, there's no way that you can be born to new life required by God other than the supernatural intervention of God. That's it. It requires that God would do a, a, a miracle in bringing you from death to life. And most of us would say, yeah, 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 but what else? <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll give you that one, but what else? And, and, and because we, we live with such a conditioning around our lives of being skeptical around things that we can't see, touch, and feel, hear, or whatever that may be in our world, the things that aren't concrete. This is real, uh, spiritual realm, I don't know about that. 
And so if we're going to enter into the, the, the biblical worldview that, that's presented through God's story from very early on forward, we have to go, wait a minute, there's something significant that's happening both in the physical and in the spiritual, both in the natural and in the supernatural. And that's going to unfold through the rest of the book of Exodus. For us, it's important to remind ourselves that, hey, just because there's cool stuff that happens, just because there's really cool stuff that happens, does not guarantee that it's necessarily from God. Like, like, like the good stuff we talked about last week. The good stuff is from God. The bad stuff is from the forces of darkness. Here what we see is the forces of darkness and the forces of light can do the same stuff. They're just cloaking it along the way. Now, that's gonna unfold as we continue to read the story. That's gonna, that's gonna keep going. But, but for right now, this is what we see. They can do the same stuff. They can, they can make the same supernatural feat occur. And already, God is saying, I will crush it at every step of the way. Why? This is a spiritual battle. This is not a physical battle between Pharaoh and the God of the Bible. This is a spiritual battle that the, the God of the scriptures is revealing, I am God. I am Yahweh, the God of salvation. That's who I am. And for us, the only way we can experience that is through Jesus. This summer, um, I had an opportunity to go whitewater rafting. And in the, in the, like, the brief beforehand, we're all standing around and our guide is giving us the brief, and it was, it was terrifying. Frankly, it was terrifying. If you didn't think you were going to drown before the brief, in, during the brief, you're like, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to drown today. That, that's going to happen. I'm pretty sure that's happening today. And one of the things that, that they did, it takes the, the lifeline out. It says, if we throw you the lifeline, here's your job. You have to grab a hold of the lifeline. Your job Grab the lifeline. You have to grab a hold of the lifeline and then we'll pull you towards the boat. But you gotta help yourself. You have to grab because, it, because we're not jumping in after you. It's very dangerous for us to come in after you. And so we're gonna throw you a line and your job is to grab the salvation that we've, we've sent to you. That's our job. As we think about, well, what is it our job to, to put our belief in Jesus? God has thrown you a lifeline. It's right before you. The God of the scriptures is a God of salvation and he's provided that ultimately through Jesus that you would have a way out, that you would have a way of hope. It's who he is. And so he's cast the lifeline to you and it's our job to grab the lifeline, to grab a hold. It's called belief. When you grab the lifeline, you're putting all your trust in a rope and the person on the end of their end of the rope. That's all your trust, right there. That's called faith. That's what we're called to, to be a people who place all of our trust in the God of salvation who's revealed ultimately through Jesus. And so the, the, the next steps this week, they don't make any sense if we don't grab a hold of Yahweh's salvation. If we don't grab a hold of the salvation that's right before us, by placing our trust in Jesus. That's it. 
Will we grab a hold of the salvation that Jesus has for us? And so what I wanna do is I wanna give you the opportunity. Maybe you've, you've never grabbed a hold. I'm gonna invite everyone in all of our venues. You can bow your heads. It's not, it's not about the prayer you pray, but it is about a commitment of trust. If you're ready to take that step, I, I encourage you, just in your own heart, you can pray something like this. Jesus, I, I recognize my need for new life, and I can never do that on my own. I can never give myself the life that you give. And so today I, I turn from being the God of myself and I turn to you, grabbing a hold of the salvation that you alone can give, turning to, to placing all my trust in you that I would follow you. Receiving the new life that only you give. And if that describes you, I wanna encourage you that you would tell somebody that in the, in the front of your bulletin, there's a card and if you just at minimum put your name and then there's a box on the back that says, I've decided to follow Jesus today that you would tell somebody or tell somebody that, that is on one of the prayer teams in your venue, tell somebody that, that's here today that you would be like, okay, I've decided to follow Jesus. For everyone else, there's two questions that we're gonna sit in right now that we're gonna ask Jesus. And the first one is, where do I need to open my eyes to what is unseen? Where do I need to see you at work? And the second question maybe is before you get to that one, and I'm gonna just pick one or the other question. The other one is, what can I not get past to see you at work? Where are you stuck? You can't see Jesus at work because you're stuck somewhere in the past. And asking the spirit to bring to mind what that barrier may be so that you could see where he is at work today. So I'm gonna pray and ask that God would communicate that to us in all of our venues. God, would, would you speak to our hearts and minds? As we ask you these questions, would your spirit resonate within us, showing us how it is that you wanna to communicate to us? We ask that in Jesus' name.